Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Every now and again in life, if you're really lucky, you meet an exceptional person, somebody that you just want to be around and talk to and learn from. Such a person is my friend, Stephen Mansfield. Hello, welcome to The Leader's Notebook. I'm Mark Rutland. Today, my guest is Stephen Mansfield. If there is a person who defines Renaissance man, surely it's Stephen Mansfield. I'm not going to give you his exaggerated uh, and extravagant biography, but he has been a pastor, a leader, teacher, uh, consultant, author, biographer, and and really uh, an exceptional person and somebody that I am delighted to call my friend and to interview today on The Leader's Notebook. Stephen, welcome to The Leader's Notebook. Well, what a kind introduction. Thank you very much. It's a privilege to be with you. So, Stephen, I want to do several things in this interview. This is going to sort of be a shotgun interview instead of a straight out like, you know, this is your life or just interviewing you with regard to one book, which is what you customarily do. I want to just sort of cover the waterfront with you a little bit. So, first of all, let's talk about books. Um, you have 30 titles. That That is absolutely exceptional. I, I I'm really amazed. How do you have time to do anything else? <laughs> it's very kind of you to say that. Well, I uh, have been very fortunate in that I had uh, some books at the New York Times bestseller list early on. And so that meant that I got, I'm just being real frank with you here, got bigger financial deals, which allowed me to clear my schedule and write more. Mm. That's, that's just the bottom line. It wasn't sure it any spe- special gift on my part. Um, but once you hit the times list, at least the next few books that you do, publishers are paying attention to you and they're, they're paying you. So I don't have to write and run around and speak and do business and do other things. I can just focus. So that's been the real key to the fact that I've got that many books at, at this age. Well, it's really been, and they're wonderful books. I, when I got the list and really started looking over them, I realized there are a good number of them that I have not read. And some of them have remarkably provocative titles. Um, but your your first sort of big book was the somewhat biography of Winston Churchill, Never Give In, The Extraordinary Character of Winston Churchill. That one really hit for you, didn't it? It did. That was actually my first book. Uh, I believe it came out in 95. Yes. And it was a different kind of book in that uh, there are many biographies of Churchill, and they're, they're wonderful. But what I did was I focused on 30 leadership lessons from his life. And so that approach kind of captured the business community, the leadership community, even sports, military, and uh, I think caused the book to go further. But Churchill has been a lifelong love for me mm. um, at, at, at the most personal level. I'm talking about just personal habits. I'm a lot like him, staying up late at night, not having done very well in school originally, uh, making my reputation largely through writing first and then leadership later, little mm. things like that. I'm not claiming to be as great as he was, obviously. But um, he's been a tremendous inspiration in my life. Well, you actually, if I'm not mistaken, you actually wrote a second book about Churchill. That The first one came out in 95 and 2004. This is not a, re- a reiteration of the first book. It's a new book, right? Character and Greatness of Winston Churchill, Hero in a Time of Crisis. 
actually, no, it's a great, it's a great act of deception because what happened was I wrote the first book under the title Never Give In. The second book is a reissue by the publisher after I hit the New York Times bestseller uh. list with the faith of George W. Bush. So we're working craftily to deceive you. Actually, it was just a repackaging of the original book. Yeah, actually, I understand that. I had one that came out under three titles, and then they contracted with my son to write a student version of it, so that made it the fourth version. So I really understand. I believe in deceiving the reader. <laughs> <laughs> I was grateful for that repackaging, though, because uh, when they did the repackaging, they made the theme of the title about leadership in time of crisis. And of course, it came out at, at a right time because we've been in almost nothing but crisis since then mm. as a culture. Mm. Um, and so I think it sort of sharpened the point of the book a little bit. And uh, also, they did it in a paperback version that's quality, but allows me to move them in bulk. So it's very common for entire leadership teams, entire organizations, sports teams, what have you. Um, to buy buy the book in bulk. So I'm really grateful for that repackaging, even though there's a little active deception there. No, it's not, of course. It's it's standard, and <laughs> I appreciate it. Listen, I, I'm intrigued. Um, I've never been a huge believer in subtitles, but yours seem to really have a an edge on them. You, you seem to have captured a way to make the subtitle almost... Uh, the hook more than the title. So let me give you an example and you give me your reaction to this. 2011, your book title, Where Has Oprah Taken Us? The subtitle, The Religious Influence of the World's Most Famous Woman. The, how much time do you spend on something? The, the World's Most Famous Woman, For the first, in the first place, when I see that, the first thing I say is, is she? Wow, is that right? Is he correct? And that seemed to really grab me. That uh, So uh, do you find that you spend a lot of time on subtitles? I do. I spend a lot of time on the title as a whole, but the subtitle is really important. Mm. Um, you, you either, you either uh, impact people with literature, I think, by writing a felt need book, you know, how you can get healed from your divorce or, or uh, you know, getting beyond our wounds kind of titles, um, or... You raise a question. You raise a fascinating question in the mind of a person. For example, one of my books, as you know, is entitled The Search for God and Guinness, Biography of the Beer that Changed the World. Now, (laughs) that title I worked on for a long time. And obviously, it's intended to put some tension into the mind of the reader. What? God and beer? What? A beer that changed the world? What? A biography of a beer? So... We sat around for a long time, my team and I, we worked on that for weeks. It's just a few words. But if you craft the title right, you can get to the heart of the book and you can you can draw out the reader. Nobody would just read a book, The History of Guinness Beer. Nobody's going to read that. But the title alone says, hey, we're trying to do something here that's different. You're going to like this. Jump in with us. And I think it's worth more time than most authors put into it. And it really does. It was. Uh, I love your title. So when I was reading through 30 titles and subtitles, I thought, wow, this is not something that just happened. The, he, he got a, a great hook on some of these. Do you consider yourself to be, uh, this is probably one of those questions where I offer you five options and you say yes, but <laughs> do you consider yourself to be a biographer or a historian or, or a creative writer? Who, who are you in your books? I consider myself mainly a biographer. Mm. Uh, I have a doctorate in history and literature. 
Um, but I would never claim to be a historian. I have so much respect for historians who spend their life uh, teaching and lecturing and researching and writing. Uh, I've known a lot of the major historians of our age, and I, I would never put myself in that class. Um, I'm a biographer, and I'm a biographer who writes, you know, used to be that history, as you probably know in universities, was the, a part of the Department of Moral Philosophy. The idea was that you studied the past in order to know how to live in the present. And so I've taken uh, that as my mandate. I don't just write stories for the sake of telling stories. That certainly has its virtue. But I want to write stories so that people can take lessons from the story. Mm -hmm. People can learn from them. People can lead differently. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a biography with a leadership purpose, I think is probably the way to say it. Perfect. And that's why I even even called my book on Guinness uh, a biography of a beer, because it made more sense to me and what I do uh, than anything else. So that's I, I would have a hard time writing books about social movements broadly that's valuable as that is. I'd have a hard time writing a book about a philosophy as valuable as that is. For me, it's about people. It's about what they did and how we can emulate them. And that's the, that's the heart of what I do. And you've always been faithful to uh, somehow or another allow the, the Christian reader access to it. I, I, I think it, in a way it, it, it doesn't do, it doesn't do uh, what I want to say for your books to say that you, you write Christian books. I mean, they are, but, but it, the Christian reader can find access to your books in a in a great way. One of my favorites, and I wonder how how you as you look back over thirty, do you do you have a favorite? But one of my favorites, I loved Lincoln's Battle with God. In in the first place, I loved the title. I I said this I want to read, and I loved that book. Did you like that book? You know that is my favorite book. Mm. From the standpoint of writing, uh, in other words, I'm, I'm I'm more proud of the writing in that book than maybe in another book I've written. I love my books for different reasons. Sometimes for the experience I have while I'm uh, researching them. Uh, sometimes because I get to spend time with amazing people, uh, and sometimes because I actually think I got on the page some pretty decent literature. And that's that's my favorite book from the standpoint of literature, from the standpoint of writing. Plus, I have a deep love of Lincoln. And um, I, 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 found, I found his faith story a way to speak to our culture. So it was an exciting ride for me. Beautifully written book. And I, I remember one episode in the book that I never read anywhere else. And then when I saw the film Lincoln, that was actually not a biographical film, but about the passing of the 13th Amendment, I, they include at least a reference to, I'm not saying it's from your book, I, but I'd never seen it anywhere else except your book. And it is... Lincoln and his wife, Mary, talking about after the presidency, what does he want to do? And he says, I want to go to Jerusalem. Where, where, did, you, yes. where did you find that story? Well, it's from Mary Todd Lincoln herself. After uh, Lincoln was killed, Mary Todd Lincoln did an interview, and she recounted that discussion. And it's, it's pretty well validated by historians. In fact, in the movie, you also saw the Lincoln taking a, a carriage ride earlier on the day he was killed. Uh, that, that same carriage ride, the only way we know about it is from the, uh, from the same interview with Mrs. Lincoln that verifies what they were talking about. And so one of my tactics, as you know, is to have put that dialogue right up front to say yes. this is what Lincoln was talking about literally as John Wilkes Booth's Derringer ball entered his brain. Wow. 
And if he was talking about going to Jerusalem and walking in the steps of the master, which is an exact quote, uh, then, then some kind of spiritual journey was happening. He couldn't have been the atheist that many historians have said he is. So that's, that's where that came from. It's known. The problem is, uh, and this is, this is maybe one of the keys to my writing. The problem is that, as you know, especially university historians, more quote unquote secular historians tend to be a little bit embarrassed about religion. Mm. They tend to be maybe even anti-religion. So they've read the same interview with Mary Todd Lincoln I have. They just chose not to take Uh seriously or not to pursue that part of the the discussion that Mary Todd Lincoln reported, but they validate the interview by using other parts of it. (laughs) I I take that seriously, and and on the page I say, now, you know, this this is controversial, but it's very well substantiated. I list, you know, 10 historians who, uh, who everybody would know. Uh, who, who validated. So anyway, that's, that's the approach I take. I think it's okay to talk about religion. I want to talk about religion. I, I believe that if a man or a woman's religion is sincere, it's one of the most important things about them. And so that's what, that's what kind of lights up the page for me. Well, it lights up your books. They're, they're brilliant books. I, I want to zero in now on one specific book and particularly the impact of the book, the broader cultural impact of the book. And it, it's a surprising one, and it has an unusual cover design, the artistic work on it. It came out in 2013, so it's not brand new, but still there. Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, colon, an, an utterly invigorating guide to being your most masculine self. Now, one might not think that that's a very controversial book, but in an age that talks only about masculinity as being toxic, you stepped right into it. Yeah, I, I love doing that. I love stepping into the fray. And uh, because you and I know each other, you know that I like humor. And I that's why there's a little bit of an edge to that book. You know, man, the cover has got a guy with a mustache on it. All through the book, we've got pictures of hatchets and you know, cigars or what have you, you know, just trying to have a little fun. I write it in a little bit of a fun, humorous, sarcastic way, yes. but I do serious history at the same time. And so you're absolutely right. I, I believe in the cause of men, uh, not as opposed to the cause of women. I believe in both, but I believe that men are in trouble. They're in a downward spiral on this generation. And so I want to call them out, encourage them to greater, to greater living and, and a more greater servanthood greater connection to God, et cetera. And so uh, to do that just in a dry, boring, preachy way probably wouldn't reach most men. But would you have a little bit of fun, put your name in the title, uh, you know, smack men around a little bit, have some fun inside, use some humor. Uh, two things happen. You Men relate to that, number one. And women also notice, especially the feminist movement notices, that I don't take myself too seriously. I actually pick on myself in that book. In fact, all of my books on men, I pick on myself a little bit, talk about my own foibles. And that, I actually get invited to some women's organizations uh, or organizations to speak because um, they, they, don't, they, they know I might disagree with them, but we're going to have a little fun along the way. And so I, I think that's a real key to reaching this culture. Well, a lot of people may not know that book actually inspired men's events, um, 
it went everywhere. I, I remember one time I took a picture of it. I, I, Allison and I were at some museum somewhere, and I found three copies of Mansfield's Book of Manly Men on the bookshelf, and I took a picture of it and texted it to you. It was We were at some Civil War museum and found this book of yours in the, in the museum of bookstore. I said, wow, this guy is everywhere. <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciate that. Nothing moves me more than seeing a book in an unusual place. I love that my faith-oriented book on the Guinness Beer Company, for example, is sold by the, by the Guinness Company, even though they didn't commission it or have anything to do with the writing of it. Um, I love that Lincoln sites around the country sell my Lincoln book. It's, uh, it means a lot to me. And when, if I ever walk through a bookstore and see my book, uh, it, it's very difficult for me not to pull about 10 travelers, passengers over and say, hey, look at this, here's my book. You know, because I'm so excited that... Uh, I'm getting into some non-traditional channels. I really love it. Well, uh, you are non-traditional in the first place. And uh, personally and individually, your mind thinks in a different way. I've, I've always thought that if I could pry open your panel box, that the green wire is on the red terminal, I think. And so, <laughs> <laughs> It'd be a scary experience for you, I'm I sure. Think it might be. I want to switch again. You have a book about it that came out in 2014, but I want to talk uh, for briefly. Another part of your multifaceted life is your relationship with and writing about and passion for the Kurdish people. Um, talk about how that happened and about the book and about your uh, TED Talk and some of those things. I mean, because that... That is a, a remarkable kind of interest to suddenly appear in a guy that spent 20 years pastoring a church in America or churches in America and a writer, a biographer. What, why suddenly this passion for the Kurds? Well, I often joke with my Kurdish friends that I didn't choose them. They kidnapped me. Mm. Uh, the, fact, the fact is that I was a pastor of a church in Nashville, Tennessee. And um, at that time, it was, and I'm, I'm going to say something that has for a reason beyond ego. It was a larger church. It was one of the biggest churches in town. And the only reason I tell you that is that when the Kurds began to pour into the city um, as a result of the persecutions of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, we were large enough to be able to make a difference. We could start tea houses. We could meet them at the airport. They were coming over by the plane load full. Um, we could teach them English. We could start job programs. And we did all of that. And so uh, that got me in connection with the Kurds. They were thankful for what we were doing in Nashville. But before long, they began to tearfully say, would you please go to Iraq? Would you please help our kinsmen? So, so not me, but some other folks formed an NGO. Uh, and we began to go into Iraq. And I just fell in love with these people. They're the, large, the Kurds are the largest people group in the world without their own homeland. They mm. number about 35 to 40 million. Mm. The largest people without their own homeland. Um, and they're an amazing people. They are the descendants of the ancient Medes. Um, if you were to sing the Kurdish national anthem, you'd actually, they actually declare in it. We are, we are the Medes. Um, mm. their, their television network in Europe, their satellite television network is called Med, M-E-D-E TV. Wow. So they own that heritage. And most scholars say that's, they are direct lineal descendants of those we read about in the Old Testament. Wow. So all that to say, um, they're fascinating. They're hospitable. They've endured much suffering, um, and I, I was deeply changed by them. They're, they're, some of the way they, are, they covenant with those who friend, befriend them, um, the way they took me in. They, they know exactly who I am. I'm a Christian. They're 99% Muslim. Uh, I'm an American. They are, you know, obviously from the Persian you know, side of the Middle Eastern ethnic tree. 
Um, but because I befriended them, because I spoke for them, they just took me in, adopted me. Mm-hmm. I, I told the story before, but I was at, at a place where gunfire broke out. And I didn't know where it was coming from. I'm not experienced in those things. And about three Kurds jumped on me to protect me. Uh, the, the, I'm, I'm a pretty big guy, you know, about six four. And it took about three Kurds to cover my whole body. But they jumped <laughs> on me, willing to take a bullet for me. I'd only been in the country for two weeks. So in two weeks, they went from stranger to laying down their life for me. And I just thought, man, these, these are a special people. Wow. And uh, I, it's, it's been a passion for me ever since. Well, I'm sure they are special people, and they've certainly enjoyed a special representative in in Stephen Mansfield. Stephen, I'm going to have to bring this to a conclusion, but I want to ask you to share something specific, and I I just may catch you off guard a little bit, but every once in a while in life, uh, I'm I'm a student of preaching. I don't claim to be a great preacher, but I, I love great preaching. And I ask you to preach for me once in a chapel service, and I it's one of those sermons I've just never been able to get out of my mind. You talked about the difference between monuments and memorials. I, I, I never heard of anything like it, and I've never forgotten it. Do you remember preaching that? And, and if you do, would you just say a word about what does it mean and what difference does it make? Well, it, it does make a huge difference. Monuments can tend to be things— um, well, let me just let me just do it a different way. Memorials can tend to be things where we uh, erect uh, s- some sort of structure, some sort of memory. We we remember a past moment. Uh, memorials are hey, remember the past, remember what's come. Monuments, though, uh, speak of something different. This is even technically true in Washington D.C. Uh, a monument says, "Let let me frame." the way that you recall this. Let me put this in perspective for you. You know, all of us, for example, have difficulties in our past. If we uh, interpret a certain lesson from those difficulties, a negative lesson, one that's destructive to our souls, um, th- there'll be those, those, those experiences will make us bitter and smaller all the days of our lives. But if, but if we erect the right monument, if we, if we remember them in the right perspective, if we uh, if we frame our past experience with the right understanding and return to it, it can actually empower us. It can actually take us to another level. And so I remember speaking uh, of that at uh, the university where we were, and I did the chapel for you. I, 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 I also, by the way, I just need to say, I remember you saying when you stood up afterwards that you were going to steal it <laughs> and never give me credit for it. I remember you saying, but we were having a fun time. But that 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 message uh, and that lesson is one of the great ones for me because I – as a biographer, I spend a lot of time watching people and talking to people who have been uh, harmed deeply by their past experience. And how they remember the past, how they frame it, uh, how they understand what's happening to them um, in heroic terms. It's what great people have done through history. It's what great tribes have done through history. And I, I think you can make all the difference. We can camp around the negative, bitter side of our history and, and frame it in a negative sense, or we can see it in heroic terms, see it in a, uh, as part of, as the price of an ascent, and it makes all the difference in our lives. Well, I never really found the nerve to steal the message, but I have remembered it <laughs> ever since. And I remember you saying to those undergraduate students and and the faculty administration were all there too, but especially to thousands of college students. And you said, the problem that your generation is facing is that in your own lives, 
you memorialize the wrong thing and build monuments in the wrong places. Yeah. And I just thought, wow, that that really struck me. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a real art to know uh, what to exalt in your life, what to frame in your life. And, um, and I, I really, I, I know it still sounds a little dramatic. I'm, 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 I'm quite sentimental. I'm a little bit like Mr. Smith goes to Washington when I go to Washington, D.C. I love the monuments. Uh, I, I love the statues. I walk the city all the time, thinking and reflecting. And I, I'm just keenly aware that in our lives, we are really defined by what we choose uh, to remember, what we choose to honor, the way we frame our past. And um, I, think, I think there are many people who are harmed by, as you, as, as you just said, memorializing the wrong things and putting the monuments in the wrong places. Mm. And if we, if we can learn to get aligned the right way, if we can learn to elevate through that process, it can be absolutely transforming. And that's what others have done. So some of the biographies that I've written that have to do with the horrible suffering. You know, we, we all exalt Winston Churchill. He suffered horribly. His father hated him. I could go on and on. Lincoln, the same thing. Terrible depression. Tried to kill himself a couple of times. Uh, hard life. And yet, they chose to memorialize the right things and build monuments in the right places. And it, it, they redefined them. And it's an art that we're going to have to learn. Stephen, you, you've lived and are living a remarkable life. Successful businessman, teacher, preacher, pastor of a mega church authors, New York Times bestseller on multiple levels. So I want to pin you as we close with one specific question. And this is a hard question. I know it is because you could say a thousand things, but few people have written more about leaders and leadership than you have, especially as, as it derives from specific historic leaders. If, if you could just say to the people listening, this is the greatest leadership lesson I've ever learned, and this is how I learned it. It, it. Is that a question that you could step up to? I'm happy to. I've thought about this a lot, as you can imagine, and I put it into a phrase that means a lot to me. I hope it means a lot to your listeners. Uh, and it is this. You have a destiny, but your destiny is fulfilled by investing in the destinies of others. Mm. Now, many people today... Uh, stop at the, just the first phrase. I have a destiny. I have a destiny to fulfill. I'm going to go out and be great. I'm going to be famous. I have a destiny. And that's where it stops. But I see in the lives of the great, I see in the pages of scripture, I see in my own life, I see in the leadership that has affected me, that when leaders uh, began to believe, yes, I have a destiny, but it's about investing in the lives of others. It's about investing in this generation. It's about investing in the young. It's about investing in a people group. Um, I believe I have a destiny, but a lot of my destiny is about investing in the Kurds or investing in young leaders. Uh, so for me, it's a redefinition of what destiny means. Almost everybody talks, almost everybody of consequence or everybody of any kind of fame speaks of having been destined in some way. But few define that destiny, that leadership purpose, perhaps, uh, it's a way to say it, in terms of investing in others. But I, I think that's the key to great leadership. We can enjoy Churchill's humor. We can enjoy his speeches. We can enjoy his midday baths. But he believed in Britain. He believed he was meant to invest in the lives of Britons. He believed he was buying 
uh, and paying the price for the world of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. That was investing in the lives of others, and that's what made him great. Um, it's, it's the difference between a mere politician and a statesman. It's the difference between uh, someone who's changing a generation and someone who's merely entertaining it. And so that phrase really captures it for me. You have a destiny, but your destiny is fulfilled by investing in the destinies of others. Wow. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, that was just exactly the way I wanted you to land this plane. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me here today. Stephen, I'm, I'm so grateful to call you friend, and I'm so, so much an admirer of your work and your life. Thank you so much for joining me on The Leader's Notebook. You're so kind. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for joining us today. Until we meet again, this has been The Leader's Notebook, and I'm Mark Rutland. I'm so glad that you are enjoying these podcasts. Let me invite you to become part of yet another level of teaching that I do. I also serve as the executive director of the NICL, that is the National Institute of Christian Leadership. There are four sessions. Each of them are two and a half days. Each session scattered over the course of a year. All four sessions for any group of four for one price. And I'd love for you to be a part of it. Bring your team, bring your employees, bring your staff, or send them and come and be a part of an experience of four sessions in teaching, change dynamics, strategic growth, transformational management, communication and worship. I promise you it will be an experience that you will cherish. You can find all the information you want at the NICL.com. That's T-H-E-N-I-C-L.com. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.